Thank you very much to Gabrielle Mercado for, for joining me today on my podcast. And Gabrielle's very interesting in that he analyzes property data and trends and has a company called Realize.com, which actually analyzes that data and presents it to people who are also interested in that data and those numbers and those trends. Tell me a bit about how it was that you came to collating this data and and packaging it up for people. Yeah, sure, Nicole. Um, so how did it start? I'd moved out of the financial sector where I'd been working in hedge funds and I moved into property development um, with some big companies like uh, I was working at Quintain um, to start with. And it took a couple of years, but I noticed um, doing the analysis for all of these different development schemes that there was no data system available that I could rely on. So in finance, you have something called a Bloomberg terminal or a Reuters terminal. Everyone's very familiar with it. And you can get any information you want for anything you want anywhere in the world. But nothing existed in real estate. And everything took a long time. Um, Things were quite complicated. Reports were paper-based, hundreds of pages long. And I just thought, well, there must be a better way of doing this. So... I think one weekend, I think it was a Sunday afternoon in June or something like that, I sat down at my computer and I thought, well, if I can't find anyone that's doing this, I'm going to have to build something myself so that we can use it. So I started out writing a bit of code and just started gradually pulling in bits and pieces of data. Um, I thought, oh, that's interesting. In Excel, we've got a little you know, model going. And I thought, well, I could probably improve on this. Maybe we put some maps in. So I integrated some mapping into it. And I thought, oh, we can probably do better than this. Let's build an interactive interface. I started building that. And we were using it quite successfully um, in the company I was working at at the time to pinpoint where there were yield opportunities because we were doing these big build-to-rent schemes. And eventually I realized that, well, hold on, I can't be the only person that's had yeah, this problem. This, yeah. um, it's probably worth me giving it a shot and seeing if I can do something with it. So... That gave birth to what was at the time called um, Insight Residential, I called it. Not a particularly imaginative or sexy name, but there we go. <laughs> um, and this was about you know, providing, providing data to property developers. And it subsequently evolved and been rebranded into, into Realize. Um, Which is a great name, by the way. Thanks. It's so very I'm... clever. It's <laughs> R-E-A-L-Y-S-E dot com. Yeah. So, you know, a mixture of real estate and analyze and mm. I'm sure it's probably pretty obvious. Um. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about your hedge fund finance background that had uh, that gave you the skills to do? Because you said coding, but mm. in, was that in Excel initially, and then more? yes, so was it just something that young people like yourself learn how to do. No, I'd, I'd never really. I say I never really learned. I learned a bit. The first version, the very first thing I did was all written in Visual Basic, which is obviously the programming language that comes along with Excel and other Microsoft yes. programs. And then I tried doing some stuff in C, another language, or C Sharp, which I was trying to learn at the time. Um, and then experimented with Flash. Um, at the time, you know, Flash, they, they use it a lot for online video games and videos, although yeah. not so much now. And it was more a case of teaching myself as I went along. So as I came to a problem, I thought, well, I can't be the only person that's ever found this problem. Go online, search around, find somebody else that had a similar problem basically pinch the bit of code to then try and adapt it into what it was that I was trying to do and gradually learn. And I still don't consider myself in any way proficient in 
coding. And, you know, the other guys on the team are much, much better than I am, but I can look at it and understand what's going on. Yeah, and but I guess it was the the finance background, the hedge fund background. What were you doing for the hedge funds? Oh, actually? so the last thing that I was doing was quantitative trading strategies. Okay. Um, so basically using maths and numbers and programs. So to you out know the numbers, and that's what yeah. I'm getting at, is you <laughs> yeah. know numbers and you know how to uh, manipulate numbers to give you the data that you require in order to make the decisions. And so I guess that's mm. that was your strength from the beginning is... is yeah. is knowing how people used numbers. Yeah, I think that's definitely been a strength throughout is is exactly that mindset that you've you've struck on being able to take complex problems, put them into numbers and use those numbers to work out an insight or a solution to it. Yeah. My banking background involved building massive Excel models and spreadsheets and I actually used to be quite proficient in Visual Basic or mm-hmm. VB, as yep. we used to call it. But uh, yeah, I found that very quickly those skills go if you're not using them. Hmm. And I guess now you've got a team around you that also, that build the code for you that hmm. are better than you at doing that. So, much, much better than me. <laughs> how many people are on your team now? So in the office, there's five of us. Um, but in total, there's 10. So we have six developers of which two are permanently based in the office and the other four are external. Mm-hmm. And we have a, a UX and UI designer. Um, then there's myself, my business partner, and a junior salesperson as well. Wow. Okay. And who's your business partner? Uh, Corey. Corey okay. Cummins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how was it that you then met and decided to formulate this uh, company This together? is a good story. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard this story. So um, I, I was already, I think... I'd either just launched, it was just starting to launch Insight Residential. And my wife is Brazilian, so we go over there every year for Christmas and New Year's. And we went to Brazil for, for New Year's, and we're on a beach in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely incredibly beautiful. It's a place Sounds called Ca- Caraeva, if anyone ever wants to go there. Um, and only Brazilians know about it except there was myself and uh, one other gringo on the beach who happened to be Corey. <laughs> And so he and I started chatting and he was moving over from the US to London to start up the, the sales team for uh, a US tech company. Uh, sorry, set up the European team for this US tech company. And we got on really well, became friends. He started helping me out um, in what I was doing, particularly on the sales and marketing side. And then, you know, eventually we just decided, well, let's just partner up on this and make it work. And you did. Yeah. And how long ago was that? That was... Uh, that would have been the start of 2016. Wow, okay. Yeah. So you've been working together for yeah, a relatively short-ish period of yeah. time and, and built up the, the team to yeah, quite, a, uh, yeah, quite a decent size, really. It's getting there, mm. yeah. And so who, who are your typical clients? Right. Uh, so we primarily work with property developers. but Of what size? It, it varies. I think the... We look at the size of the transactions and the frequency of deals that they're reviewing. Generally, you have to be looking um, at at least three to four deals a month, Mm -hmm. not necessarily taking them on, but at least reviewing them um, in order for our product to make sense. Because what we're really doing is saving 90% of the time that you otherwise spend trying to collate and collect information to make sense of what's going on in the market. So we do that for property developers. We do it for investment companies asset management companies, uh, uh, lenders, and also agents now. So we work with a whole whole range of different companies, usually on the 
mid to enterprise scale. Um, that said, we do have some some quite nice small guys working with the product as well. Yeah, and and is there an interface? How does that actually work for the developer? How do they find and then uh, use that data? Right, so there, you're exactly right. There's an interface. It's all done online in the browser. Uh, you log into the system. You get a heat map of the UK that allows you to drill down into 9,000 different parts of the country, little neighbourhoods, basically. Uh, and then we match uh, 405 different data sets to each one of those points and chart it back, uh, you know, in some cases over the last 25 years or so. And you're able to then graph these different data sets, compare them against each other, export them. You can also have a look at all the comparable properties, um, the listings that are in that area, the historic listings, those matched up with land registry data and surveyors reports. Um, and there's a pretty neat little feature that we're just building out now into version two, which allows you to put in your, your preferred investment or development strategy. So let's say you're trying to find an area of the country where there's high population growth, uh, high income, high yield, as mm -hmm. an example. And, you know, maybe lots of... The Holy uh, Grail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. So you, you can put in those criteria and as many as you want, really. You press go, um, the system whirs and buzzes for a few seconds, and then it'll show you the parts of the country that match that criteria, and it'll show you what properties are actually available in that area as well. Wow. Yeah. That's, that is very powerful. So... What areas are you identifying? Because I saw in your, I saw recently you'd written about Walthamstow and Twickenham, mm -hmm. and I thought maybe it's just long names. <laughs> people like the, they're attracted to the long names, so West Ham's out. But um, what is it particularly about Walthamstow and Twickenham that you're seeing in the data? So it's quite interesting you say that. So those reports, there's no actual method methodology behind choosing those particular areas. It's more a case of I sometimes have a look around on the system and just start scanning across the country and pick out things that appear to be interesting at that point in time. And then if I think it's interesting, then I'll, I'll spend a bit of time writing about it. Um, there's another one that I'm, I'm looking at writing about, which is to do with the, the difference in the sold uh, versus asking prices in North and South London. So I was looking wow. at that the other day and seeing, it's very easy to spot it on a heat map. Because you suddenly go and you see that you know North London is effectively one colour and South London is a slightly different shade or even a different colour. You go, oh, well, that's probably something interesting. And then you start digging down into it a bit more and seeing if that holds true for all property types or you know is that across all transactions, whatever it might be. I haven't written it yet. But that um, that solvers asking that's not available on a on land database. No. So this you must have access to numerous databases that you mm. then feed in. Uh, to the to the one yeah, data feed. More than half of our data is proprietary. You can't you can't get it anywhere else. Whether it's uh, you know construction costs or rent per square foot, um, total return. There's yeah, literally hundreds of different data sets that we've spent a lot of time creating and pulling together. Um, measurements of loan to value, understanding which areas are over leveraged, and that throws up some interesting results as well. You can see that. The majority of properties, let's say in central London, are they've either been owned for so long that the mortgage has been paid off or the cash purchases. So central London generally has a very low level of gearing. But if you go further out, you look at areas like Canary Wharf or you go further to the southwest, you start seeing much more red areas. And you see these areas where more people are moving in and they're taking out much lar larger mortgages at much higher LTV rates. 
Wow, okay, so I guess banks, this would be very interesting for, for lenders and the big banks to see what areas they would not want to lend in, for example. Mm -hmm. So we tried to get uh, some high street bank finance in place for Luton and were told by a high street bank that they just do not lend in Luton. Really? So it would be very interesting to see what it is and if there is any data that, that can substantiate that fear that they have or that um, prejudice against Luton. And, and this could really mm. help lenders with their lending decisions if there are particular properties which um, or whole areas that could potentially destabilise. Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually, just before I came here, was at a meeting with a, a large lending business and they want to be able to have a tool to do exactly as you say, analyse what developers are coming to them with, analyse the market. But they also want their developers to have the same tool so that everybody's on the same page. So then, you know, a developer or investor such as yourself isn't then in that situation where you've gotten into a particular project and then discover you can't finance it because you'll be able to see, well, is this going to be financeable? Is this going to going to work? Hmm, fascinating. And so what are some of the more commonly searched data sets? Everybody loves the pound per square foot data because mm -hmm. um, we can do that on an individual property basis um, or on an area basis and you see the trends unfolding over time. Yeah. Uh, both on the rent and sales side. Everybody always seems to love the, uh, the volume of transactions in the market, both on the listing side and the sales side. And people get quite interested with the credit scores as well. So we have credit score information in the system that we aggregate from various you know, credit scoring companies. And that throws up some interesting results as well, where you see the areas with poor credit scores uh, correlate with areas of, of high yield because if you're taking more credit risk, let's say, in that area, you have to be compensated by having a higher return on investment, a higher yield. But interestingly, then there are areas of opportunity where there's good credit scores, but they're, let's say, otherwise kind of tainted perhaps by their neighbours, and so you can actually pinpoint some nice little opportunities that way. Wow, it's really fascinating. And so going back to the Twickenham and Walthamstow Mm -hmm. uh, research that you found. What was it in particular about those two places that you found were were desirable or interesting? You're putting me on the spot. And I, I can't am remember. now. You're going to review. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. We can. If you want to read that post, you yeah. can go onto your website, realize.com, and there is a post there that um, that goes over it. And uh, I didn't read it either, but yeah, it, it's there. <laughs> and it's not just to do with how many uh, syllables are in the the name of the the area. But then going on to uh, the buzzword of PRS or build mm -hmm. to rent and you have uh, you've written about how it's mispriced and yeah. what what are your views on PRS and is it is the buzz is the buzz worth the buzz is the buzz worth the buzz so i worked at Quintain which is a very very large development company and also one of the largest uh, PRS developers if you look at what they're doing in Wembley with all of their developments there um I also work with Essential Living, which is a very you know, well-known now development company doing BRS or build to rent. You know, if you're building it up, there's definitely in the market, there's a, a segmentation. People are realizing between the things that you build to rent and the things that you buy to rent. So PRS and BTR. So just explain those two acronyms, the PRS, sorry, uh, I should have done that. And the PT... BTR. So BTR, BTR is build to rent. Yeah. Uh, so a development company building out product in order to rent it either on their own book or potentially selling it on. So you're talking about purpose-built structures uh, with all the, the modern amenities that 
you would hope to expect. Whereas PRS can also include existing secondary stock, so uh, Victorian terraced streets, because it is ultimately anything that is in the private rented sector PRS. So my view on it um, came about, and I started formulating these thoughts whilst I was working at Essential Living, thinking about what we were doing there and looking at what was happening in other countries and thinking about Germany and the United States. And what had happened, particularly in Germany, is that the, uh, the yields on private rental developments, uh, institutionally backed developments, were much, much lower than what was in the UK. And bear in mind, Germany and the European markets have been doing this for a very long time, as is yes. the US. So they've had much more time to establish what is the kind of true value of these assets. And I thought, well, is that going to happen in the UK? And then I started thinking, who's buying these assets at the end of the day? Who is buying, you know, a hundred million pound block of flats? And ultimately, it's pension funds and asset managers who are looking for those long-term uh, inflation indexed returns. And I thought, well, if I'm in their shoes and I can go and buy a inflation indexed government bond and I'll be getting a very, very tiny yield or even negative potentially, or I can invest into uh, rental properties and get, you know, three, four, five percent and have it inflation indexed. Well, that's a massive discrepancy. Shouldn't they be a little bit closer together? So in the white paper that we published earlier in the year, it was the compiling of research that looks at the perspective of the asset manager or investor and the range of different options and opportunities that they have available to them to make these returns that they need for their, their pensions, their clients, whatever it might be. And we basically found that given the risk and return profile of private rented accommodation, uh, the yield should be considerably lower which is quite interesting for the market. It means that people that are getting in now, you know, if this is correct and we start going along the lines of you know, yields that would be present in Germany relative to the, their index rate, there'll be considerable yield compression still in mm, the years to come. Right. I'm, I'm assuming that the, the yields in Germany where there is more of a rental culture are closer to a bond yield, for example rather than ours, what, what would be the average yield required of a British fund manager investing in a, a, a large PRS type investment? So it, it obviously depends on the location where they're investing. Um, what I've seen with a lot of these investors is that they're going into the build to rent uh, side as opposed to the pure PRS. So actually taking on uh, development risk themselves in one way or another. And that's in order to boost that yield yeah. because they might only be getting three, three and a half, something like that. And if it continues to decline, it'll well continue to decline. So seeing much, much more of that happening, which is interesting because then it's allowing a whole new wave of finance for property developers. Yeah, because their expertise is in managing the money, not and while they do want to be exposed to the build to rent yeah they industry, don't know how to build it. it exactly yeah. so they need to partner up with the developers who do have the the expertise and i i know that this is a big trend in sort of the outer commuter areas of london and 
many estate agents I've spoken to, the larger commercial agents have asked many times, are you interested in partnering up with, with perhaps a, an international and Asian based, an Asia based uh, fund to build for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to, to see how those yields will probably over time you would think they will over time have to compress and approach the lines of the the US and and Germany and and be closer to a bond yield because they are yields and it it does show a a discrepancy in pricing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, There's, I think it's almost certain to to head that way. And what are some of the other interesting data points that people search for and and really value? Uh, What are some of the other interesting ones? So obviously the maps, the yeah. heat maps are very interesting because you can very clearly, what colours do you go through as far as... The- so it's, it's a kind of red-green um, heat map, although actually we're, we're going to try and build in a secondary option because we realise that we've got um, uh, some colourblind customers and oh, actually yes. having red-green, right. they looked at it and go, well, I can't actually I can't figure out what's different. <laughs> um, so say, okay, well, we need yeah. to change that then. So uh, what, what other interesting bits and pieces are we putting in there? We're putting in income data, which I think will be quite interesting for people. So we worked out a way to approximate um, and very, very closely approximate the exact level of monthly earnings in every um, every one of these 9000 areas of the UK on a monthly basis, as opposed to having to wait for things like censuses or annual or biannual reports on a regional basis, whatever it might be, we've managed to really break it down into the sort of hyper-local neighbourhood, what is the average earnings in this particular area. I think that will be pretty interesting. I'd love to ask you how you do this, but I guess this is all pr- proprietary <laughs> information, but I'm even things such as the pound, uh, construction costs on a square foot basis, mm. a lot of these must be manually entered because it must involve you data that can't just easily be slotted yeah. into the the feed that you have so, so is there a lot of manual work that's going on um without no, giving away are, your your it's not really that much so with with the uh construction cost information where you can well work out how much it's going to cost you to build a tower block of flats versus a house in the countryside high spec low spec etc um that information is compiled from surveyors reports originally that then get digitally processed that then get um, amalgamated um, averaged out high lows put in place um, property types determined uh, conditions spec determined etc fit out and then that information just gets put into the database Um, it does take a while but we try to remove any manual process we can get rid of. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's why there's only, you know, there's only five of us in the office, mm-hmm. not 50. Yeah. And what are some what are some interesting, I, we've mentioned Twickenham and Walthamstow, but what are mm. some other things, other areas that strike you as quite interesting, even for the fact that, oh, my goodness, I would never invest there, but uh, some of the areas that, they, that are looking in really, really interesting, either because they're so good or because they're so bad. What What are some of the key things, the key nuggets that are being thrown up by all this research? Okay, uh, what are some things I'm thinking about scouting through the data and things that I've seen? Down in Cornwall, oddly enough, I saw that it looked like the market there was, I think it was sort of heating up. 
um, on the northern coast. Now, bear in mind, this is just from me recalling what I've seen. Mm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I remember digging down into the data and having a look and seeing that the number of transactions was increasing and sort of prices were increasing and yields were going up and rents were going up and all sorts of stuff like that. I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. That's probably an area that everyone's overlooked. No one, unless you live there, um, you wouldn't necessarily know about. Um, that's really interesting yeah. because when I was talking in Exeter recently, there are a number of large house builders there. Well, there were, there were a couple of large house builders there talking about the, the yeah their developments in Cornwall hmm. and how there's a lot of uh, the uh, prefab, but what's the, the term for prefab that's not prefab, but the, the, the timber, the yeah. cross-laminated timber, that's yep. the word, CLT construction where home builders were actually setting up manufacturing mm-hmm. facilities there in Cornwall because they're, once you build more than 300 houses, it makes sense to have your manufacturing plant on nearby. virtually on site nearby. And yeah, so there does seem that there, just from anecdotal research, yeah. that there there is a, a heating up of that, which is now reflected interesting. in the, in the nice data. Interesting. It's nice to have that validated. So that's, I didn't yeah, know. that's really interesting that, uh, that you brought that up. And is there any other things that, any other areas that you see? Because you must... As someone who is yep. interested in data and interested in property, you must want to trawl through this and test for various data points. I do, and I spend quite a lot of time doing it, and then it all sort of merges together in yeah, my head. Exactly. So other things that I'm thinking of, and this might be a little not as current, but I remember looking at Canary Wharf and seeing how the supply of units coming onto the market there all at once had pushed rents down, um, and that had then caused lower yields there. Um, I saw something else actually, which was to do with uh, developments in Wembley. I saw a big sort of spike in uh, new properties coming onto the market. And it was quite interesting because I was talking to the development company that was actually responsible for it. And so they were testing the system and they were thinking, you know, not smugly, but let's say, you know, they were trying to trying to find a fault with it. And they knew that they had just released 70-something units onto the market. And so they go and have a look at the area where they'd, where they'd released them. And then sure enough, there's this sort of spike where the, the market's gone from like five one-bed rental units to these 70 flats that they're putting out there. And go, oh, wow, okay, that is there. And then you see the, the corresponding shift in the average rents as well. And what about all around Battersea and the developments all around there that uh, have been getting a lot of pro- press lately? Obviously, there's a spike in supply there as well. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, 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 you know, the big site around Battersea, they might have got a little bit too enthusiastic um, in what they were trying to do. Not that it isn't brilliant. Um, and I think they will have to manage quite carefully how many units they release um, and what type and they might have to adjust the the price expectations um, because the market of today especially in those sort of quite expensive or prime semi-prime areas is not as kind of buoyant as it was let's say. Yeah so there's certain areas that I like and dislike just from really the experience of my business partner and myself looking at these various areas so things like as you said canary wharf i wouldn't buy a development there i mm. don't really like stratford either i feel it's overdone mm. uh croydon, croydon. uh yeah, you said yep. that uh, <laughs> walthamstow uh what's some other areas yeah wembley as well and these are just areas that we feel 
just from the hype that they're overdone. So it'd be very interesting then to have a look at your data and, and find those points that then prove and, and disprove the, yeah. the feel that we have for those. There's one thing that I'm thinking of, and I haven't dug into it that much, but because we've got um, information about the, the population of an area and the population density and also the number of uh, buildings there, you can actually do a little cross plot and see what is the ratio of you know the number of rooms or the number of buildings that are, exist within a particular area versus the number of people. So what is effectively the density of people per property? And I think that if you looked at that and you looked at areas where the density was higher, that might be a pretty good idea of where it would be a good place to build next. Yeah, exactly, because even if the with economic environments perhaps improving, these people who are living quite densely now will want to move, do you think, from where they currently are to stay within the area but not live quite so densely? Is that the sort of yeah, way you're looking yeah, at Yeah, that's, that's sort of what I'm guessing. You know, they, they won't necessarily want to move to the other side of town, but if there's, you know, three of them in a, a flat, maybe one of them wants to move out and get their own place or something like that. And is there a way of uh, using the data that you, you have to perhaps support planning applications. So if you are doing a, a, a large development, let's say a, a 40 unit scheme in Luton, which I am doing, and okay. you want to, you've, you go to planning yeah. and you want to maximise your return as well as the, the use of that scheme, could you then present to the council the data saying this is the demand in the area for uh, one beds, two beds, three beds? Because generally the, the council dictate to you what you need to have. Mm-hmm. But with your data, you could actually determine and demonstrate act- while you, yeah. the councillor, determining that I have to do this. However, this is what the this is what the data is saying. This is the demand. Is is that something that yeah, can be totally. Done? And there's there's three things that come to mind on that, and I hope I remember to say all three of them. So the the first one is that we've got a few different measures of demand in the system. One of the things that we look at is we. Uh, track people searching on on Google when they're looking to buy or rent a property anywhere in the country. That's um, frightening. Yeah, <laughs> not on an individual basis. Don't worry, okay. we're not watching you. Um, so we we collect all of that information together to then build these indices of of search traffic for particular locations, and that's a good leading indicator of, of demand. Um, additionally, you know we have the supply side, let's say, but we also have how long it takes to sell or to rent units in a particular area. Again, another measure of of demand. If they're flying off really quickly, then they're obviously in more demand. And then the the ratio, as I said, between the asking price and the sold price. And, you know, if they're one-to-one, then it means people are obviously paying exactly what's being asked because they really want it. And if there's a bit more of a gap, maybe they don't want it as much. And sometimes you even get the situations where people are paying more than what was asked because they really, really want it. And so you can use all that kind of information to to understand what demand's like. And there was this uh, property development in, in West London. Uh, it was like a £120 million scheme. Um, and they couldn't, they'd bought it a little bit too high in the market. Um, and unfortunately, with all of the various consultants that they had on board, they couldn't actually make the scheme viable. And I was asked uh, by one of our investors, actually, if I wouldn't mind just taking a look at it as a favour. I said, OK, fine. And I spent a couple of hours running through the data and had a look at what they had on their scheme and looked at actually what appeared to be more in demand in the market and what sort of amenities were more in demand and what sort of values there were 
for, for adding in these different kind of amenities and realized that they actually needed to change around um, a fairly substantial part of the scheme, but all still within the planning constraints that had been set. And doing that actually turned the scheme from inviable to viable. It took me two and a half hours sitting actually in a meeting, tippy-tapping away on the, the keyboard and sent the email back and away they go. Um, and then the third thing is on this point about councils, so we're actually starting to work with councils now. <coughs> so it may well be, um, you know, hopefully at some point in the future that everybody's using the same information so the council can actually see, you know, this is really what's in demand in the market, this is really what we need, and, you know, a developer comes along and says, I'm going to go and satisfy that demand, I'm going the to build exactly build what people want. Exactly, yeah. exactly to demand. and. And that would be incredible. And so does that mean that you are selling your product into the council and they're, they're, they're becoming your clients? Yeah, so we've, we've just started doing that. We had one council approach us the other day. Um, it was the first time I actually thought about that as a market. Mm. So given our conversation, that seems very positive and it seems like many other councils uh, potentially will be following suit. That's exciting. And so what is the future for Realize? Future for Realize, uh, we want to automate as much of, as possible of the investment and development process. So we want to help people to understand their portfolios better, to be able to benchmark those. We want people to be able to find uh, land and development opportunities faster and more easily. We want people to be able to gain uh, finance and, and clarity around the sort of financial investment options available to them if they're in, in the development space. And for the funders and investors to have exact clarity on what it is that they are lending against or investing into. Valuations uh, would be another aspect as well. It's ultimately, we would like to be in a position where all of the boring, painful, complicated aspects of property development and investment are handled by us. And that would then allow everybody else to actually get on and do the much more interesting and dynamic bits um, and allow the market to function much more easily, I think. But it's about knowing what sort of data that you need and how to find the data because yeah. the reason it took you two and a half hours for the for your investor is that you knew what data you needed in order to put yes. that all together. So for a smaller boutique developer like myself, how how easy do you make it for us to find out what data points we actually need and how to find them? So we're doing a little bit of training. We actually want to start doing little training instructional videos. We have these little pop-ups that come up in the bottom right corner of the screen. Uh, you know, if you click on a particular indicator or data set, that'll say, you know, hi, this is this data set. This is how we put it together. Uh, here's some ideas around how to use it. We'd like to expand on that and actually go into, I suppose, an element of, of training and saying, well, have you considered having a look at the population against the number of properties in that area? Because you know, that could be interesting. Because otherwise, um, yeah, people might not necessarily know what's available. Uh, we've got 405 different options, so yeah. <laughs> it takes a while to scroll through them. That's right. And do you have uh, tiers of access for various price points? Uh, yeah. how, how is your pricing set up? Yeah, for- there's, there's, there's two two options. Um, one we call professional, one we call premium. And the simple difference between them is that the premium one gives you more historical data, whereas professional only gives you the uh, current data or data up until 2014. Sure. So that's 
last uh, yeah three years of, of data. Okay. Yeah, which is usually enough to be able to see what's going on, you know, in the market, get an idea of what what the trend is and what the values are, etc. Um, but many of the larger firms want to be able to see where are things in relation to the previous uh, financial crisis and crash and property crash and say, well, is this area as high as it was or lower or higher and why that might be. And how far back do you go with your historical data? It depends on the data set. Uh, the furthest back, I think, is to the sort of mid-1990s. Um, and then... A large section of it is probably, it goes back about 10 years. Um, yeah, we try to go back as far as we can for, yeah. for each and every data set. With some credit scores, as an example, we don't go back all that far, though. Yeah, they have that, I guess they haven't been collated for that long. And even yeah. when you look at planning apps, they only go back a certain amount of time because they just, they were kept, uh, they weren't digital yeah. and haven't been digitised, so there's no access to those unless you... Do you want to send someone into the local authorities <laughs> to actually, yeah, input all that data? And what about uh, internationally? Do you have any expansion plans to roll this out over Europe? Are there systems, in, the systems in which you capture the data here in the UK, can they easily be replicated? Uh, we've had a look at some different countries. We've had a look at Germany, France, uh, New York State, Singapore, Hong Kong and Australia and found that we can probably expand to each one of those places and we're in conversations with some different groups around exactly that subject that said internally we want to make sure that we get it completely right in the UK we want to make sure that we're serving as many needs and demands of the market here first before we start going into other parts of the world because I think there's a there's a lot of value here there's a lot of problems that we can solve and there's a lot of things that we can do more effectively and efficiently for people and then it'll be you know I have an office in Paris or something. Yeah, somewhere you want to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you said, you're you're a relatively new company, mm. so uh, yeah, there's still enough clients for you to to service here with the. There's plenty, here. yeah. Yeah, if if you were buying somewhere for investment purposes, mm -hmm. based on all the the numbers you've crunched recently, where would you be looking? That is a really good question. Um, my wife actually had the same question for me a few months ago. She was saying. Everyone in my office has said, you know, property prices have gone down and now is a good time to buy. What do you think? And I started rambling on about microeconomics and macroeconomics and developments and all sorts of stuff. And probably went on for about 20 minutes and she turned her head on her side and said, so is it? <laughs> <laughs> and that then actually, um, that actually inspired me to write an article that hasn't been published yet, but that'll be coming out later exactly around this question. Where is the best opportunity? Is there a, is now a good time? Is it a bad time? Is it a, a waiting time? And as a bit of a spoiler, I suppose, um, what I found was that if you're looking at the, a lot of the kind of core areas of cities got overvalued or overpriced, um, they've subsequently come down to a more reasonable level, but they're still pretty high. Areas further out... Um, still present quite a lot of interesting opportunities for sure and on a sort of more you know more macro basis we've got a fundamental supply and demand problem in the UK that's not being resolved and we have incredibly low interest rates um, there could be some kind of macroeconomic shocks that tip the scales in such a way that property prices trend downwards it's possible but it seems to me like that is more of a low probability event 
more likely to see you know continuing increases actually um which then means it's about looking at these you know outskirt areas of cities let's say the kind of zones four of london and i don't know what the equivalent is for kind of manchester and liverpool etc but for those kind of areas the commutable areas yes that's yeah, because I think the I've forgotten the statistic now, but for every three month three minutes you go out of London, the average price drops quite dramatically. It's all it's always over Twitter that statistic, and I should have taken more notice. But yeah, it's about the affordability and yeah. the utility value of these properties that are just in the zone fours and beyond. Okay, so you're saying zone four <laughs> and commutable areas. <laughs> So we'll uh, we'll see how the data tracks you can, over you can time. You dive into that, yeah. yeah. exactly. And we can read that paper on your website. Yeah, that'll be coming out. There's another one actually talking about transportation because I was looking at what is the relationship between transportation accessibility and, and prices for the whole country. And it was quite interesting. It covered, you know, again, sort of the nine, same 9,000 different places and measured how... F- was it how far can you get in one hour, uh, either by public transport or by driving, and then gave each location its own little index value of, you know, you can get to 500 square miles or something from this place. And, yeah, there was a very clear relationship between accessibility and price, and for every kind of incremental improvement in transportation, public transportation infrastructure, particularly in cities, there was a pretty significant um, increase in prices. What was interesting, though, was this kind of substitution effect as you got further out. So places where uh, places where there wasn't really, there's not much public transport and everybody relies on cars, it didn't actually make that much difference if you added more public transport because everybody was already using their cars oh, anyway. I see. So there, it was a habit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, which was, that was quite interesting. Um, and I think I found the worst networked place in the country was some island in Scotland, which also <laughs> happens to make really brilliant whiskey. So I don't know if they're trying to stop people getting out, stop people getting in. Getting in, yeah, yeah. that's right, drinking all their whiskey. Yeah. But you would assume that uh, an island in, in Scotland wouldn't have such great uh, transport things, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> especially in winter. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Look, it's really fascinating, Gabrielle, and I, I would love a couple of hours with your software, actually, just to sit down and, and look at overall trends and, and, yeah, just see some of these trends for myself and see what some of the data is coming, is outputting and these heat maps. It all sounds really interesting. So mm. where can people get in touch with you? Just go to realize dot com uh there's a little button on there that will say uh, request a trial it'll come through to uh cory generally <laughs> <laughs> sometimes to me um and then we'll, we'll basically get in touch and just check that you know this is the right kind of software for you and get people started on a two-week trial excellent thank you so much for your time gabriel thank you thank you it's been great